All right, well, it's good to be together. It's great to see you. It's uh, such a joy to be able to gather together with God's people and to remind each other what's real, what's true. So thankful to pray together and to uh, sing together and to have this chance to study uh, the Bible together. We are a Cornerstone Bible Church, and so we're Bible people. At least uh, we want to be Bible people, and that's because we believe that God still speaks through what he has spoken. What's written down here in our Bibles, we take seriously, not because we absolutely understand everything or because we have it all figured out, but because we know that while it was written by human beings, obviously, there is more going on. We can also say it was written by God. This is God's book that we're looking at, God's word, the Bible. And if you were here last week, you know that we began during our time together while we're looking at the Bible a little more directly, doing something a little different than we normally do, because we normally would just look at one particular book of the Bible and even one, specifically one passage in that book and kind of work our way through to understand what God's saying. But we're taking a step back, actually, and instead of zooming in, we are zooming out for about four weeks or so and uh, looking at the whole Old Testament, the Bible is divided into two parts, the old and the new, and we're looking at the whole Old Testament and trying to get a big picture understanding of what the Old Testament is basically about. And each Sunday, I wanna give you one key concept that I think will help you understand the Old Testament. So last week was kingdom, and this week is covenant. Kids, you you heard that, that was one free one. Covenant, you're marking that down, and Marta's over there. You can see her afterwards, but to help you listen. But we're talking about covenant, and obviously we're not going to go into every single detail in the Old Testament, but we're just trying to get a big picture understanding of what the Old Testament is about. For for one thing, because a lot of people don't know what the Old Testament is about, honestly. If you asked many people to summarize the Old Testament, I think you would get blank stares a lot of the time, and maybe sometimes people would say Israel, or uh, sometimes people would say something like the wrath of God. And that is a problem, not understanding the Old Testament, because the Old Testament is a big part of our Bibles. I mean, even if you just look at the English word count, just use a normal English Bible, they say there's something like 622,000 words in the Old Testament and 184,000 in the New. That's approximate. I didn't actually count them all myself this week, but that's the basic idea. So if you don't understand what the Old Testament is about, you don't understand most of the Bible because you don't understand 70% of it. And it's even a little more serious than that, actually, because of the 184,000 words in the New, a lot of them are quotes or allusions to the old. They say like one in every 22 verses, 22.5 is the specific, one in every 22 verses is a quotation from the Old Testament, which means if you don't understand the Old Testament, you're not gonna understand the New Testament. And if you don't understand the New Testament, that is a huge issue in your life because it means you're not gonna understand Jesus which is the ultimate reason really we want to understand the Old Testament. It's because we want to understand Jesus and not just like intellectually, but see Jesus, love Jesus. We know the Bible is intended to put Jesus on display. God, the Spirit uses his word to show us Jesus. And so as we study the Bible and especially the Old Testament and we seek to understand what it's about, it's not just because we want to be Bible nerds or something and know a lot of random information about uh, the scripture so that we can beat other churches at Old Testament trivia, but instead because we realize this book is about our savior, Jesus, and there is no way you can really understand what is going on with Jesus unless you understand a little of what's going on in the Old Testament because they're connected. 
If you even just think about the way the first gospel begins, Matthew, how does it begin? We open up our New Testament and the very first book that we have in our New Testament begins with a long list of names from the Old Testament. And those names are there at the beginning of the New Testament as kind of like a stop sign as you're reading It's almost like Matthew is saying, stop, go back, and make sure you understand what is going on in the Old Testament before you go on and try to understand what I'm saying about Jesus, because Jesus completes the story the Old Testament tells. And last week, we began looking at that story a little more closely, because the Old Testament is telling a story. What is it? It's a lot of different kinds of material, but fundamentally the Old Testament is telling a story. And we said one key concept for understanding that story, this was last week's key concept, for one key concept for understanding the Old Testament story is this whole idea of kingdom or kingdom of God. I was reading somewhere this week, even to a casual student of God's word, it must be clearly evident that a theme involving the concept of a divine kingdom on earth stands forth prominently among the doctrines of scripture. And that is true, I think. In fact, if you open up your Bible to just the first couple of pages, it's, it's hard to miss because you get a picture of what God designed the world to be. It's like the introduction to the story in Genesis 1 and 2. We get a, a glimpse of God's plan as God is creating the heavens and the earth good and he is giving man the responsibility to represent him through ruling this earth on his behalf and coming to dwell with us in a special, unique way in the garden. So this is God's people in God's place being given the responsibility of ruling over this world on God's behalf as they experience God's presence and enjoy God's blessing, which is a picture of the kingdom of God, really. That's what we mean by the kingdom of God, Genesis 1 and 2. That's how the story gets started. There in the introduction to the book, God, from the beginning, here's a quote, determined to objectify the conceptual qualities of his rule, first through Adam and eventually through a God-ruled mediatorial kingdom, which I know is a lot of big words, but think about that. God rules obviously, but God intends to spread his glory throughout the whole earth by making visible his rule through chosen human representatives. That is the plan, basically. And one of the things that's actually very helpful about the way the Bible tells its story about the kingdom is that if we somehow miss that in the introduction, like we were sort of sleeping at the beginning of the class, we can fast forward all the way to the conclusion and find it as well. There are are parts of the Bible that are complicated for sure, but God does help us. It's like he stoops down and helps us understand what it's about. And one of the ways he helps us is by making the beginning of the Bible and the ending of the Bible very similar. I wonder if you've ever compared the first two chapters of the Bible with the last two chapters of the Bible. How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, the heavens and the earth. And you know, how does the Bible end? Revelation 21.1, you can mark it down or look it up. Revelation 21.1, John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And that's a hint. There are going to be parallels between the beginning of the story and the ending. And as you look at Revelation 21 and 22, there is a lot. There is a garden. There is a tree of life. There's no curse. There's life without death. And there's God dwelling with man. That is where things are headed. Kind of cool way that theologians put it. They say eschatology is like protology. And uh, that's a difficult way of saying that the way the story ends is a little like the way it begins, only better. 
which of course isn't how it is right now. That's the problem. There is the plan in Genesis 1 and 2, and we know it's the plan because of Revelation 21 and 22, but then there's the problem, and that's kind of where the story really gets going in our Bibles, because man turns his back on God at the very beginning, and that act of rebellion had devastating consequences. The problem we face is a big one. If you think back to Genesis chapter 3, It impacts creation, the ground is cursed. It impacts our relationship with one another. We're blaming each other and at odds with one another from the beginning. It brought death into the world where it wasn't there before. It kind of kicked off this big old battle between the followers of Satan and the followers of God. I think you could say it gave Satan some level of authority in this world he didn't have before. He's called the prince of the power of the air now and it started here. And you know, it definitely created problems in our relationship with God as well. What do man and woman do when they hear God coming in Genesis chapter three, verse eight? They hide and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what should they have done? Run to him. And yet Moses says, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And why do they do that? Genesis 3.10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So the consequences of the fall are epic. It's not like they're relegated to one little corner. It, It sort of impacted everything. And it's a total break, which is illustrated, I think, as humans are cast out of the garden and sent into exile. In fact, one of the saddest lines in all the Bible has to be Genesis chapter 2 or Genesis chapter three, verse 24, where Moses says, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So here is this place of absolute perfection where we are longing to be. And God says, you can not enter, which of course makes the way the Bible ends surprising because suddenly we're there, right? And so it's like, how? How how did that happen? That's the question, which is what really the Bible and the Old Testament story is about, the plan, the problem, and the solution. And one big thing the beginning of the Bible makes very clear, if you're looking at Genesis, is that the solution isn't gonna be something that we do. The solution isn't gonna be us because After the fall, everything just gets worse, Genesis 4 to 11. It's murder in Genesis 4, polygamy by the end of the chapter, actually, Uh, death in Genesis chapter 5. It's every intention of man's heart being only evil continually by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6. If God's plan is the kingdom... We see at the beginning of the Bible that if God left man to himself, what we would get is the opposite of that kingdom. Because man by himself wants to establish an anti-kingdom. That's really the Tower of Babel. We want the Garden of Eden just without God. We are seriously messed up. That is clear from the start. And yet in spite of all that sadness, we have hope because you remember God made a promise. In the middle of executing all that judgment, God preaches the very first gospel message in Genesis chapter three. Speaking to the snake first and then ultimately to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So the hope is that it's not just gonna be Satan and his followers. They're gonna be a group of people whom God raises up who are gonna be godly and who are gonna be engaged in a battle against Satan and his followers. And that battle is gonna rage on and on until eventually God says one of Eve's descendants will rise and defeat Satan through suffering and conflict. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And from the moment God made that promise on, godly people were looking for that descendant of Eve to come. 
and they were trying to figure out how God was going to use one of Eve's descendants to overcome Satan. And they were trying to figure out exactly who that descendant was going to be. In many ways, that's actually the story of the book of Genesis. In fact, there are some who would say, you see that in Genesis 4.1 already. Walt Kaiser is an Old Testament scholar, and he says, you could translate what Eve says in Genesis 4.1 when she conceives and gives birth to Cain. I have gotten a man, even the Lord. And Martin Luther apparently thought the same thing. This Eve is thinking might be the one. I think we, we see that for sure in what Eve says at the end of Genesis chapter 4. She may have thought that Cain was going to be the one who would crush the serpent's head. And obviously, if she thought that, she was mistaken. And it's part of why his murder of his brother was a double tragedy. And it's why she was so excited when she gives birth to Seth. What does she say in Genesis 4.25? God appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. And that word offspring, especially when you read the book of Genesis, is actually the key. It's, it's like found 70 times or so in the book of Genesis, uh, almost double or triple what is found in the rest of the Pentateuch. This is Eve's offspring. And that is significant if you think about Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, because of the word seed seed of the woman, offspring of the woman. God has given me another seed, Eve is saying, which means she's thinking the plan is still on. And there are some who would say the rest of Genesis is basically a search for that seed. Who is going to be the seed? Where is the seed going to come from? Actually, that's kind of the Joseph story. Is, is it, why, why is it Judah and not not? Simeon, and why is it Judah and not Joseph? But I think we see that already in Genesis chapter 5, if we keep going. When Lamech fathers a son, he names him what? Genesis chapter 5, verse 29. He names him Noah, and he explains why he gives him that name in verse 29. He calls his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. And one of the things you have to pay attention to, especially as you read Genesis, but really any book of the Bible, the Bible is always quoting the Bible. And Genesis is always quoting itself. There's a lot of what they call maybe intertextuality, but even just in the book of Genesis, Moses is always quoting Himself And here, this is definitely an allusion back to what? The way God cursed the ground because of man. Genesis 3, again, was work and painful toil. And so what is Lamech hoping that Noah will do, really? He's hoping that Noah will be the one to reverse the curse. Since the way back, godly people have been hoping that the descendant of Eve would come and defeat Satan and they had been wanting to know how he was going to come and what he was going to do. And part of the purpose of the rest of the Old Testament is to help you understand exactly who to look for and how God is going to keep the promise he made in Genesis 3 through him. And one of the primary ways he reveals that story is through something we call covenants. There's that word covenant again, and now we're getting to it. Because while the kingdom of God is the theme of the Old Testament, and we get to know a little bit about what that kingdom is in Genesis 1 and 2, and, and why it isn't like that right now in Genesis 3, and why we have hope that God's going to fix it in Genesis 3.15, there's still a lot we don't know in terms of who exactly and how. I mean, we know it's going to be a descendant of Eve, so it's going to be a human, but that is, that's pretty broad. And we know it's going to involve him crushing the head of the snake as the snake bites his heel. So in other words, we know there's going to be some sort of final victory through suffering and conflict, which is actually a lot to know since this is just like the first three pages of the Bible. But it's still pretty, pretty general, which is why the rest of the Old Testament slowly but surely reveals a little more, a little more 
a little more about how God is going to accomplish that victory. And one big way that it tells that story is through these things we call covenants. And that's the key concept this Sunday, covenant. I once heard someone say the, the story of the Bible is a story of kingdom through covenants. Another person explained, covenants act as the skeleton upon which the entire redemptive story is built. In other words, they're like the backbone of the Old Testament. And so I want us just to begin to explore what this whole idea of covenants is about. Just begin. And we can start with the very first time we find the word covenant in the Bible. There are a number of important covenants, but we're going to just look at two today. And do you know the first, the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible? You might think Genesis 1 and 2, because uh, some people think there's a covenant in Genesis 1 and 2, but we don't find the word there. The, the first time we find the word covenant is in Genesis chapter 6. And it's where God is speaking to Noah. We call this the Noahic covenant. And to understand the importance of the Noahic covenant, you have to understand that even though we're only a few pages into our Bibles by the time we get to Genesis chapter six, it's been many years since God created the world. And at this point, man is basically out of control. You remember Adam said, I want to define what's good for myself. And that results in Cain murdering his brother and then uh, people marrying all sorts of wives. And by the end of Genesis 4, it's human beings boasting in violence. It's like this spirals down. Once we turn our back on God, it gets so bad that if you look at Genesis chapter 6, you'll see what is one of the strangest stories in the Bible. And it's a hard one to understand there at the beginning, really. But it gives you a little bit of the context for God's covenant with Noah. Because what happens in Genesis 6, 1 and 2? says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And that becomes the catalyst for the flood. So it's a, a big deal. And there are a number of different ideas about what's going on there. And I'm not going to get into them all now. And it's okay if you think differently than I do. But to make it quick, I think demons, sons of God, meaning anti-God angels, it's usually the way the word is interpreted, were finding a way somehow to marry women. I don't think they literally became human, but like other angels in the Old Testament, they somehow assumed a human form. One reason I think this too is because it seems to be the way Jude interprets this passage, but maybe they did this because they were thinking they could use women to have children who would enable them to rebel against God's plan. And I'm reading a little into the text, so this is not authoritative really in any way. But since the beginning, Satan's been making plans against God's kingdom. And it seems like his plan here might be that since God said to be fruitful and multiply, let's mess with that. And yet it doesn't really work. <laughs> and the writer makes that clear in a funny way. In verse four, he says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And Nephilim basically means tall. And at least that's one way to translate it. It's a hard word, and that's why they just leave the word there like that. They don't translate it. But there are many scholars who would say it means tall or giant. And so you're like, wow, supernatural demonic beings came to earth in an attempt to overthrow God's plan, and here's the best they could come up with. The best they could do is have really tall children. And you know, the writer stresses that wasn't very unusual either because it says there were tall people on the earth in those days and yet we also find tall people on the earth afterwards. So it's like, sure, there were tall people back then, but you know, there were tall people afterwards as well. And whether that's exactly what's happening here, the point is, the point is that man is rebelling against God in huge ways. That we know for sure because the text goes on and says, the Lord saw verse five, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of, this heart, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, which seems as bad as it can get. And yet God's not gonna let man's rebellion win. And so he appoints a time of, of judgment. If you go back to Genesis 
chapter 5, you see that in the middle of all this wickedness, there was one man who was really godly. This is verses 21 through 24. His name was Enoch. It says he walked with God. And as he was looking at all the sin around him, it must have grieved him. And he had a son, and he named him Methuselah, which some people have said means when he dies, judgment. Or when he dies, it shall be sent, which I think may have been a kind of prophecy. Judgment is coming when this boy dies. And God shows mercy by letting Methuselah live a really long time. And yet he dies eventually. And when he dies, judgment comes. And yet again, in the middle of that judgment, God shows mercy and rescues one family. In the middle of all this death, there is one man who doesn't die. It's Enoch who walks with God. And there's another man who escapes the judgment. It's Noah who, who feared God. And you know the story, I'm sure. God floods the earth. And what is a flood? A, a flood is when waters cover the earth, right? That's what a, a flood does, which should sound a little familiar if you know the story because waters covering the earth has happened before in Genesis. It takes us all the way back to the way things were before God started bringing this world into order. So it's almost like in this judgment, in Genesis chapter 6, God uncreates the earth and then recreates it again, or at least that's, that's the picture. Or another way to say it is that he gives the world a bath, after which the text tells us the ark comes to rest on the mountain, and God takes Noah out into this new world and makes him a promise. Specifically, he makes him a covenant. And this is Genesis 9:8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. And that word covenant is really important. That's why I'm telling this story. So far, we've seen the beginning of the world and in a sense, the end of the world as we know it at the flood. And God's starting the world over again. This is almost like a recreation, except now it's a fallen world. And yet as he starts the world over again, he's starting with a covenant. What's a covenant? Let's try to define it. At the very least, it's a commitment. It's not really a, a super familiar word to us, but the word God uses here is a word that would have been familiar in Moses' day. Moses and the people reading this book for the first time, they were part of what we call the ancient Near East, and the ancient Near East had covenants. So this is a word that would have meant something to them. It's a little like a promise, a covenant, but it's not a promise like, hey, I'll come to your house tomorrow. It's more like a formal promise. It's like a, like a contract, actually, a covenant, in that it's like an, a legal agreement but a contract doesn't usually involve much of a relationship. Mostly a contract's about how do I get out of this if, if you mess me up. And a covenant is actually more about how do I stay in this? How do we, how do we bless, how can I bless you? Which is why you don't talk about marriage as a marriage contract so much as you talk about the covenant of marriage. It's a legally binding obligation, a covenant like a contract, but it's more personal. And in the Old Testament, there are different kinds of covenants. So you could have a covenant between equals. Or you could have a covenant between a superior and an inferior. So a, a powerful nation might enter into a covenant with a less powerful nation. And that covenant was like a formal agreement between the two. And actually what I'm telling you is sort of important for understanding the rest of the Old Testament. So I know it maybe sounds like... Uh, a little bit technical, but so much of the Old Testament is based on this idea, especially once you get to the prophets, because basically what they're doing, they're what you call covenant enforcers, covenant, uh, they're almost like prosecutors. And, and most of the time, what a, a covenant would do is focus on the inferior's obligations. In other words, hey, we're making a covenant with you. You're the, the inferior nation, which means we want you to do these things. And if you do, we'll bless you. And if you don't, you're going to be cursed. We're coming after you. And, and like stuff we do today, there's a whole form to this. So you'd have symbolic elements like a sacrifice or a meal. You would have a sign or a token which served as a reminder. And then you would have these legal elements. And this was sort of the, the key, uh, an oath or a promise. 
But sometimes there was another kind of covenant, which is different in that it didn't so much focus on the inferior's obligations as it did the superior's responsibility. So the first kind of covenant you might call a treaty, and the second you would call a grant or a, a, a gift. And that's the kind of covenant that God makes in Genesis chapter 9. It's not a treaty, it's a grant, it's a gift. After man's rebellion and man's judgment, what happens? Because this is big when you think about it like this. God starts the world over, making a commitment to the world itself. And that commitment is not so much focused on what the world is supposed to do, but on what he is going to do for the world. If you look at Genesis 9, 9 and 10, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the earth, it is for every beast of the earth. This covenant is not just for us, it's for the world. And what is the essence of this covenant that God makes? If you go back to Genesis 8, 21, what does God say he'll never do again? And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. And then neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And if you fast forward to Genesis chapter nine, verse 11, it gets more specific. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth, which is huge because it's like this first covenant sets the stage for the rest that we're gonna read about. As man wars against God at the beginning of the Bible, God, God's got the complete capability to wipe everyone out. We could very easily be Mars, if you know what I'm saying. That's not hard for God. And looking at Genesis chapter six and the grief our sin brings God, you could understand God doing that. And what's interesting, Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, God repeats the same thing he said about man before the flood. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So it's not like anything changed. And yet here, in spite of man's sin, and in spite of God knowing what man is like, God pledges, he commits himself to his creation, not just to cursing, but to blessing. He's gonna patiently allow this world to remain until he provides the solution for what man's done. As someone put it, through the Noahic covenant, God promises stability of nature as a platform for carrying out his kingdom plans. And you know, it's cool if you're reading the story because this is like, let's start over in Genesis 9. He basically reaffirms the whole plan he shared in Genesis 1. And he gives Noah, if you look at the story, very similar commands to the ones he gave Adam. It's like he's putting Noah in the world the way he put Adam. Adam and Eve were the only people on the planet. Noah and his family were the only people on the planet. Adam and Eve were in the garden on the mountain and Noah and his family come out of the ark on the mountain. Adam and Eve were perfect and experienced fellowship with God and while Noah wasn't perfect, he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation and he walked with God. And God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and you know what? He makes the same exact command to Noah. Only now it's in a world that's under the curse and so there have to be some modifications and God has to talk to Noah about some things he never had to talk to Adam about and yet as you're reading about Noah, you can't help but wonder if Noah will be able to do what Adam couldn't. Is he going to be able to rule over this world as God's representative and establish the kingdom and really fill the earth with God's glory? The word Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. And you remember this was like, this was life in, in the kingdom at the end of Genesis one, rest, enjoyment, blessing. And so you're looking at Noah in the new world, wondering if he is the promised seed who's gonna bring that promised rest. After all, that's what his name means. 
And yet it doesn't take you long to discover that he's not going to be able to establish the kingdom because just like Adam in the garden who ate of the fruit of the tree and ended up naked and ashamed, not long after Noah comes out of the ark, he eats of the fruit of the vine and ends up naked and ashamed. And from that point on, the world just keeps getting worse and worse. After the reboot, it's basically the same story. It's Genesis 3 to 6 all over again until basically everyone joins together in rebellion against God, refusing to submit to God's authority over them by trying to establish a kingdom for themselves. And this is Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And Babel is a city. And do you know the way the word Babel is translated every other time in the Old Testament? It's translated Babylon. The reason they translate it Babel here is because the word Babel sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for the judgment God brought on the people, kind of like how the English word Babel sounds like the verb to Babel. So it's a word play. But you could call this the Tower of Babylon. And what is happening in the Tower of Babylon is basically the same thing that was happening in the Garden of Eden, only now on a grand scale. In the garden, Adam and Eve sinned, trying to be like God. And at the Tower of Babel, you have the whole earth coming together to exalt themselves over, to, over God. What do they say to themselves in Genesis 11:4? What do they want? Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Adam and Eve wanted to be God, meaning they wanted to have the ability to define good and evil for themselves. And at the Tower of Babylon, everyone is gathering together and basically saying they are defining good and evil now, only in the exact opposite way God had said. God had said, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And at the Tower of Babel, the people said, no, that is not good for us, which of course is why God stoops down once again. That's even the language that is used in Genesis 11. God has to stoop down, come down to judge man. And yet even as he judges man in Genesis 11, we find him taking another step forward in his great restoration plan. It's one of the things I love about the Bible and especially the Old Testament. Every single time man does his worst, I guess not especially the Old Testament because it's right there in the gospel. <laughs> Every single time man does his worst. Every time it looks like man has done the single most evil thing he could do, God steps in and uses that moment to take another step forward in his plan for fixing what man, man had broken. When Adam and Eve sin, first there's this promise to defeat Satan when the whole world is going crazy, God cleanses the world and rescues Noah and makes a commitment to creation. And when people join to get together to shake their fist at God, God chooses an old man to use to rescue the universe. If you look at Genesis 11:10, you'll see this section begins with a, a genealogy. These are the generations of, of Shem, which might seem boring, but actually gives hope. Because what's it saying? It's saying, look for the seed. The seed plan is still on. It's saying, in the middle of the chaos, don't forget the promise that God made about the seed of the woman, because God hasn't. He is still working to preserve a line through which he's gonna send someone to rescue us. And at the end of Genesis 1, we see God's, Genesis 11, we see God's doing that as he chooses an old man from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which you know was actually part of what important part of the world? Ur of the Chaldeans. Where was that located? It was located in the empire of Babylon. It was part of Babylon. God chooses this old man from where Babylon, the empire, would be located and makes him some of the most important promises we find anywhere in, in the Bible. And we call these promises the Abrahamic covenant. And understanding Abraham comes from Babylon is helpful for understanding the end of the story, right? Because where does Judah end up? The Old Testament's so cool. Where does Judah end up afterwards at the end of the Old Testament? 
basically Babylon, right? They're sent into, they go back where Abraham was, was from. And so you're really wondering at the end of the Old Testament, what's going to happen? And then the new is like, pop, here comes Jesus. But we find these promises God makes to Abraham here in Genesis chapter 12. And this is the second covenant we find in the Bible. And it's where things start becoming more clear because the, the plan's been laid out. God is going to establish a kingdom. The promise has been made. One of Eve's descendants is going to defeat Satan. The stage has been set. God has entered into a covenant with the world that in spite of how bad everything gets, it's going to remain until he fixes what man has broken. And now he tells Abram that the seed he promised who's going to defeat Satan is going to come through him. And this is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. What does God tell Abram to do if you look down? Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And what does he promise? I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if you look at that, one, what one word is ringing in your ears as you read that promise he makes to Abraham or Abram? It's repeated five times so we don't miss it. Bless. And that is shocking. That is the word I want you to hear. Bless, blessing, blessed. God here is making a commitment, a binding commitment to reverse the curse, basically. There are some pretty big parallels between the Tower of Babel and the fall, actually. You've got man's rebellion, God's response, judgment. And then right after that, you've got the next step of revelation and how God's gonna solve our problem. And here's, it's through another covenant, which like the first is a grant covenant. It's a gift. If, if you want a technical term for this, maybe you don't, but it's called a unilateral grant covenant. How's that? for a, a big word. But some of these terms are, are helpful. So like there's covenants you enter into where both sides make vows, like a marriage, hopefully. That's bilateral. And then there are others where just one side makes the commitment. That is unilateral. And those blessings, the blessings that come from that kind of covenant are really certain in the Bible because they depend on God alone. It is gonna happen no matter what because God is the one who is making the commitment. And here, God is making a commitment that in spite of how evil the world was and is, he is going to use Abram to accomplish his original plan. In you, he says, all the families of the earth shall be Blessed, as Christians, we should just be like, yes, I love that word, blessed. Blessed, this is really good news because who is this covenant gonna benefit if you look at it? Abraham, for sure, is gonna be blessed and the nation that comes from Abram is gonna be blessed, but ultimately, through them, all the families and nations of the earth. It is the next step. And it doesn't tell us everything, of course. We need the rest of the Old Testament but it does tell us something big. God is telling Abram that somehow his offspring are going to be the key to God reversing the curse. And you know, if you wanna be more specific as to how that's gonna happen as you try to piece together God's plan, you see it's gonna have something to do with a nation that is going to come from Abram. That's Genesis chapter 12. I'm uh, seven, I'm gonna make you a great nation, God says. And this nation's gonna be given a specific land, Genesis 12, eight. To your offspring, I will give this land. And then kings are gonna come from Abram. This is Genesis 17, six. I will make you fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And eventually his descendants will triumph over their enemies, Genesis 22, 17. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And this will bring blessing to all the nations on the earth. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. In other words, as we read about this great judgment in Genesis chapter six, we see that God makes a commitment to the world that he's gonna fix what man's broken, but we still don't really understand how he's gonna do it, especially as we watch humans get worse and worse until they come together to try to overthrow God's authority and establish a kingdom for themselves. And yet as God stoops down to judge, we're wondering how in the world 
Can we be saved? And so God chooses Abram and tells us that his purpose in choosing Abram and creating this great nation to come from Abram is worldwide blessing. The Old Testament expectation, at this point at least, is for God to establish a nation from Abram with a king and land that is blessed and is the basis for bringing that blessing to other nations. And you know ultimately what Abram needs to do to make this happen? And this is maybe where we can get a little more practical. As God enters into this redemptive relationship with Abram, what is Abram's role? Because it's, it's pretty obvious as you read the rest of Genesis that Abram wasn't the world's best individual. And certainly the people who came after him, Isaac and then really Jacob, definitely. For example, what's the first thing that Abram does after God makes the promise to him in Genesis 12? He goes, he obeys, that's good. But the very next story, he leaves the land God promised him because he's scared And then he tells his wife to tell people she's his sister because he's worried the people in the land where they're going might kill him if they find out they're married, which is pretty low, right? If your husband did that, you wouldn't be like, but he's a really good man. Um, I know, let me marry somebody else, but he's basically a good person. And Abram doesn't do that once, he actually does it twice. And the point is that Abram's not really that different from the rest of us, he's a sinner too. The only thing that stands out in the stories we read about Abram, and really the only thing, is that he believes God. Which wasn't easy actually, because the funny thing about God choosing Abram is that he's just so old when God makes this covenant. And his wife's womb is basically dead as she's past the age of childbearing. And what's funny is that even after making this promise, God takes his time and lets the situation get more difficult until God comes to him again in Genesis 15 years later and says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram says, that's good, but I'm not sure what my reward will be because I still don't have any offspring. All I have is my servant and he's a nice guy, but he's not my promised son. And so God tells Abram, this man is not going to be your heir. Your, your very own heir shall be your son. And then God brings him outside and says, look towards heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them. And then he says to him, so shall your offspring be. And what's key is how Abram responded. Genesis 15, 6. This is so important. You, you should look it up. It says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And what did Abram believe the Lord about, specifically, here in Genesis 15? The issue at the front is the promised seed. God said, a son is coming from your own body who will be your heir, and Abram said, amen. And you know what God said? God said, you know what I reckon that to be? Justification. And later on in the New Testament, Paul's going to say, that's an example of how we're all brought into a right relationship with God as well. This is a model of how we can experience this great deliverance God's providing. God's got a plan to reverse the curse, to spread his glory throughout the earth, and you can be part of that kingdom. How? Look at Abram. It's through faith in his saving promise, specifically in the seed of Eve, Eve's descendant who is coming to crush Satan. It is not on the basis of our merits that we enter the kingdom, it's faith in God's deliverer because Abram is definitely not a perfect person. And you know, when God enters into a covenant with him to bring blessing into the world, he doesn't give Abram a long list of qualifications. Instead, he calls on him to trust in his ability to keep his promise, the promise he made all the way back in Genesis 3 to defeat Satan, to send a rescuer, and to bring blessing and to achieve victory through his chosen seed, even when it looks impossible, like with Sarah, because her womb was what? Dead. Basically, you know, to, for Isaac to be born, what did God have to do to Sarah's womb? He had to resurrect the womb, in a sense, to bring life where there wasn't life before. And he did, he did, Abram. Abram trusted God could bring life into that dead womb of Sarah, just as he said he would. And God did, if we keep reading that story, Abram and Sarah eventually conceive, and as we read the rest of the Pentateuch, it's like we're watching God keep 
his promise. The Pentateuch are the first five books of the Bible, step by step, to make Abraham's descendant into a nation. And really, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so much of the Old Testament as well is about God keeping his promise to Abram through Israel. And I know that's sometimes difficult for us to read because we're like, we're not Israel. We're not Israel. And yet, as we're reading the story of Israel, we can't forget that this story we're reading of Abram's descendants has a purpose that is linked back to God's saving promise. In the beginning, God said, I'll defeat Satan. And then he establishes the platform through this first covenant, the Noahic covenant. It's going to happen on this planet. After that, he reveals the plan in the next, the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to use Abram's offspring to fix what man has broken. That's their purpose, to be the means of God's blessing the world. And that means, of course, as we read the Old Testament, even though we're not Israel, (laughs) we're looking at what God's doing in Israel, asking how. How is God going to use these people to do all that? And we know, of course, one, they're the means God uses for so much revelation. They bring blessing to the world through scriptures. Two, they're the one through whom the Messiah is going to come. And three, they're going to fulfill a role of service and leadership to the world. They're going to be the geographic headquarters of the Messiah's reign, which are all big ideas and is a little of what we're gonna talk about next time as we continue working at getting a big picture understanding of the Old Testament. Why? Ultimately, so we can see and enjoy Jesus because Luke is gonna look back at the Old Testament and say, you know all that? Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment. Let me prove it to you. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for revealing so much to us. People get excited about things that are not real. They'll spend a lot of time talking about movies. They'll spend a lot of time uh, talking about this or that hope for the world. And we actually have the plan. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be students of your word, Cornerstone Bible Church, not because we just want to just know a lot of facts and information and kind of be impressive or something silly like that. But Lord, because we want to see Jesus. Like Eve, who was hoping for the seed to come. The descendants of Abram, who were wondering who would be the seed. Lord, we know that the promised one is Jesus. And we, Jesus, and we want to love you, Jesus. We want to know you as best as we can know you. And walk with you as closely as we can walk with you. So Holy Spirit, do a great work in us and help us like Abram to have faith. to to trust that you really are, you are the promised one. We pray this in your name, amen.